Our scripture this morning is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. All right, we're doing two verses today, moving forward, getting things done. Um, all right, how's everybody doing? Are we good? I'm glad there's a few more of you here this morning. Last week was a little small. I'm kind of introverted, and so small groups, awkward. Um, no, it's great. I enjoyed it. Love, love all of you. Um, so, uh, two verses today, and uh, it's sort of going to tailgate on what we talked about last week, as it should. Um, and uh, I don't think I have a big introduction. Let's just pray, and let's do it. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Uh, we thank you that you have, have brought us together here. Um, open up our hearts and our minds and let us, let us hear from you. Speak to us, speak to our, uh, uh, the parts of us that we haven't let the gospel in yet, that we haven't let it touch and, and, and reform those parts of our hearts and our minds and our relationships and our marriages and our jobs and careers, all of it, all of the places we have not brought the gospel into. Um, help me to communicate clearly. Let me remember all of the things that I've studied this week. And uh, just do a really good thing with us this morning, God. We, um, a lot of people here need, need encouragement, need direction, need understanding about life uh, situations that are going on around them and with friends of theirs. And so a lot of times we, we get together as Christians and we cry out to you and we just ask for answers. And I ask that you would give us some of those. Thank you. We love you. In your name, amen. All right, so today I'm going to start with a bit of a story. I've been reading a book by a guy named John Ortberg, um, and it's soul-keeping, something like that. Um, but he, before he was a writer about, of theology and things, he worked um, here on the, on, the, on the New York Stock Exchange, and he actually worked for the guy who invented the hedge fund. If you're not into finance stuff, he, uh, the guy who invented hedge funds basically came up with a way for you to uh, never lose money on investments when things are going up. You can keep making money. When things start going down, you can actually make more money. Um, it's, a, it's a tricky thing and uh, questionably ethical. Um, and so there's, he, he worked for this guy and was making a lot of money. Um, and he would talk about how he... Um, he the bonuses that he would receive here and there were sometimes more than other people would make in their entire lifetime. Just the bonuses. And he lived in this high-rise overlooking, in Manhattan, overlooking Central Park, and he had another house in the, in the New York suburbs uh, to get away to on the weekends. He said that his cell phone would have to be on all the time. He oftentimes would sleep in his office. All the guys he worked with had um, beds, cots in their offices, and they would sometimes sleep there. Um, because on the other side of the world, when we're going to sleep, they're waking up and doing business, and they had to, they had to be ready to buy, sell, do all this stuff um, on a moment's notice and be ready for a big business deal. And so just very wealthy, wife, children. Um, and he never told his family, but he wrote in this book that, that um, at some point he started hearing voices, not like a lot of, really just one voice in the back, in, in his mind. Like he would literally hear it. And it would... It would always be there, and he could never quite understood, understand what it was saying. Um, but when things would get really stressful, things would get very busy, he would hear sort of this mumbling, this talking in the back of his mind. It, it was a male voice, and it was there. And um, he would always kind of stop to listen to it, 
And whenever he would stop to listen, he couldn't hear it. It was gone. But he would regularly hear it. Um, and then one day, he says, he got in his limousine from, from work to go to a business deal. And the driver wasn't in the limousine yet. He was in, in a local gas station or something. But he's sitting there alone, and it's like soundproof. It's totally quiet. And he finally hears the voice, and it says something. And he realizes what it's been saying. Um, and he literally said, I, I heard the voice, and it said, it said, John, I am your soul, and I am dying. And he, and he, and he hears this, and it, he just kind of is shocked at what he's hearing, and he knows he's probably got some mental issues and some stuff going on, and so he, he, he quits all of it. He, he just stops all of it and um, takes his family and moves on. Um, but I tell you this story because a lo- I think a lot of people, I'm not saying a lot of you are hearing voices, although it's entirely possible, um, a, a lot of you um, are moving at such a frenzied rate in life that you, you are destroying this part of you that is responsible for determining, sort of reminding you of who you are, your identity. It's destroying this part of you that is really, really in- integral part of, of who you are. Um, your soul is, if you were to describe like sort of the human as a computer, we've been talking about the three parts of a human body, mind, spirit. Um, if you were to describe sort of, use a, a metaphor of a computer to, to describe us, there would be the body, which would be sort of the hardware, the screen, the input devices, the motherboard, all of that. Um, and then there's sort of the mind, which is the programs that you're running, lots of things that you do, things that you are, are well-educated in, things that, you know, and the, the roles you play. I'm a, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a pastor, I have all these things, these are sort of software that I've installed, it's stuff that I do. Um, the, the OS would be the soul, the operating system would be the soul, it's the part of you that just sort of takes all of this and puts it together and makes sure it all runs smooth and makes sure all the parts are good. Um, oftentimes you don't realize, like a computer, you don't realize that your soul is, is breaking apart, you don't realize you're destroying your soul, you don't realize there's something wrong with it, and, and you don't even notice your soul until something goes wrong. Um, oftentimes you never think about your soul. You never think about this part of you that will live on forever. This part of you that, that is created in the image of God that, that is supposed to be the central running device for your life. And so um, Dallas Willard actually puts it like this. He says, the soul seeks harmony, connection, and integration. That is why integrity is such a deep soul word. The human soul seeks to integrate our will and our mind and our body into an integral person. Beyond that, the soul seeks to connect us with other people, with creation, and with God himself, who made us to be rooted in him the way a tree is rooted by a life-giving stream. So he describes a lot here. Your soul is the connector of everything. Um, Your soul wants so badly to set the course for your life, and it wants everything else to be sort of wrapped up in that goal that the, that the soul picks, that course of direction. Um, and that course of direction has to do with connection with God, connection with people, um, meaningful, loving relationships. It has to do with forgiveness. It has to do with, with um, guiltlessness. It has to do with um, a life of integrity. It's all of this. Um, so last week we talked about, uh, well, we read, we read this verse. It says, so put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and and all slander. So these five things that it mentions, you'll notice if you go back and listen to it, if you weren't here, every one of these things that we talked about have to do with sort of separation. Deceit is convincing somebody of something that is actually not true. Um, 
uh, envy, wanting something that you don't have and even hating the people that have it uh, in order to get it from them. You think they're keeping it from you. Um, Malice, it's um, desiring things that even as the word and the story goes, doesn't provide you. Once you get it, doesn't provide you what you think it will. Um, Hypocrisy. Uh, pretending to be something you're not. All of these things are separation from the way things are supposed to be and from reality itself. These are all separation words. And, and Peter says, you need to take off all of these separation words. All of them need to come off. Um, because the soul desperately wants more than anything for your life to be together. To be put together. To be combined. To be all on the same goal. All on the same mission. And so... Peter um, says, you're going to take off all the things of separation and we're going to put on something else here. Let's look at what he says we're going to put on. Um, So I'm going to underline different points uh, in this verse as we move through it because I'm going to focus on these individual words here. So let's start off with this part, uh, like newborn infants. And so he starts off, remember he's been telling them they're born again and it's it's, uh, the perfect metaphor, you know, you took your life off of the, the root system of your life off of your flesh, you put it on your spirit. Um, and so you're born again. And so now he calls you newborn infants. Um, and he says, it's, it's sort of a fresh start. We all want a fresh start. That's the great thing about Christianity. The resurrection is that tomorrow can be a fresh start. Today it doesn't have to be like it was yesterday. Um, and he says, like newborn infants, um, and, th- and then we're going to focus on this, long for the pure spiritual milk of the word. Now, uh, the word pure is, in some of your versions, will actually, will actually say unadulterated. Um, it means, literally, it means one thing from one source. Uh, a pure thing from a pure source. It's pure spiritual milk, um, obviously, is referring to um, the mother's milk for the baby. Um, not adding anything to it. Not um, changing it in any way. It's exactly what the baby was intended to drink. And so why did he use this? Well, even in ancient times, they knew that the best thing um, in a healthy um, birth situation, the, the best thing a child can have for the first six months to a year of life is uh, the mother's milk. And they've known this for centuries upon centuries. Um, this, um, and why? Well, there's, there's a lot of things that Oh, I got way ahead of myself here. All right, so there's, there's a lot of things, um, there's a lot of reasons why. Uh, first off, um, the mother's milk has literally every vitamin and mineral that the baby needs. Um, anything that the baby needs can be found there in the mother's milk. It's not missing anything. You don't need to add to it. You don't need to subtract from it, take anything away from it. In a normal, healthy situation, this is the ideal thing for the baby to eat for the first six months. It will literally meet every need that the baby has. One thing. Pure, pure milk. Um, uh, and uh, also, a lot of studies have shown that, that, um, that breast milk from the mother protects the baby from um, countless illnesses and diseases. All kinds of things could go wrong, and the mother's milk protects it from that. Um, also, we know that um, babies who are fed by, the, by, uh, by breast milk alone from the mother are uh, 20% less likely um, to die before the first birthday. And so there's all of these things, and people have always known these things. And so Peter sort of uses, now that you're born again, you're newborn infants, there's, um, and just like in real life, there's one thing you should eat. There's, there's, there's one thing you need to eat for a while as well. And he calls it the pure spiritual milk. And so Peter, I, I love the, the description here because Peter says, um, you know, there's something that you can feed your soul with that will defend your soul from all sorts of spiritual diseases. 
Is there something that you can feed your soul that will keep it from the death that the, the death of faith that a lot of people suffer? A lot of people's faith die um, when it's still young and still new, before they're really grounded, before they learn anything. It's a time when you are very vulnerable, like a young uh, infant baby. Um, there is something that is everything that your soul needs. And it literally will meet every spiritual need that you have. And it's the word of God. It's the gospel. And, uh, he, and, and so this is what he's describing. He says, you need to feast upon the gospel. You need to contemplate it all the time. Um, and remember, we talked about the word of God. Uh, the word of God isn't in, in this time, in this day and age, wasn't necessarily referring to what we have today, the Bible. The Bible does contain the word of God, but it didn't actually exist in this period of time when this was written. He, he would have been, if he was talking about scriptures, would have been mentioning, talking about sort of the Old Testament, but in a broader sense, he's talking about the message of God, that God created you uh, to be a certain way, and, and, and things that are broken, God has enacted a plan of salvation to fix all the ways in which your life is broken. All the ways in which your mind is broken. All the ways in which your relationships and your relationship with God and your soul is broken. God is the God of reformation, of, of fixing things, of making them right again. So, um, so he says, um, let's, let's look at the little next line here. We're going to look here. Um, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now, this can be deceiving, mainly because, um, I, I don't know about you, but I grew up in sort of a, a generation where... Um, the focus of Christianity has solely been on the afterlife. That's all it had been for decades when I was a kid. Um, it was always, um, what's going to happen when you die? What's going to happen when you die? How do we fix that? What's going to happen when you die? How do you fix that? And, and, and this is how we would talk to people on the street. There was never really a care for um, what's happening in your life right now that God can fix what's happening in your life right now, the parts of your life that you haven't given up to God and you're suffering and you're, you're, you're already in hell right now in your own life. And so there's, there was rarely this talk, and, but he says, so that you may grow up into salvation. Um, the problem is uh, the word salvation, we, since we, there's an entire generation of people that have focused on simply that idea as being part of the afterlife and that's all. Um, we fail to realize that there's over 158 times in scriptures that the word salvation is used, and a small minority of those are actually referring to the afterlife. The vast majority of those times salvation is used in scripture, it's talking about actual times where people needed to be saved from life-threatening situations, from diseases, from illness, from poverty, from oppression, from slavery, um, from the pain of childbirth, from all kinds of things that people are crying out for salvation from. And so when you read this, you kind of ask the question, well, what kind of salvation is he talking about? Is there any kind of context? Um, how will we know what salvation he's talking about? Great question. Thank you for asking. Um, in verse 3 here, he does sort of a, a Jewish teacher trick, and it's quite brilliant. Um, there used to be a, a way of teaching in, in first century Judaism called stringing pearls, and perhaps you've heard of this or read about this. Um, it was basically the, the teachings were called pearls of wisdom. You know, even Jesus said, don't throw your pearls before swine. It has to do with the teachings. Um, and, and so the teacher would be teaching something, and he wanted to um, sort of take this teaching to a whole other level and add it to something that maybe the prophets said. And so the teacher would quote a line from an ancient biblical text. And 
Bef- this was long before we had chapters and verse separations. These things weren't added until the 15th century, um, around the Elizabethan, Elizabethan period. And so they, they just had these, these large books. And so if you were going to find a passage, you would have to quote a piece of it. And so Peter here, he says, that by it may grow up into salvation. And then he says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. That sounds like an interesting thing to say, like a weird thing to say. That you may grow into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Like, what? what? What does that even mean? He's actually, the reason he does this is because he wants to point to a passage in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, chapter 34, right here in verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, and so he would throw this in there, and the people would say, probably if they had pen and paper, quill and whatever, they, they would write this down. Oh, he he. He just referenced an Old Testament passage. We need to go study that. So he mentions salvation, and then he references Psalm 34. It turns out Psalm 34, you know what it's called? It's called the prayer of deliverance in the Old Testament. It was a prayer that the Jews would pray whenever they needed to be delivered from something. It was a prayer for salvation from the current situation. King David wrote it. Um, as a praise that God had saved him from a life-threatening situation. And, and this writing is one of the most fascinating writings in, in the book of Psalms, to me at least. Um, from top to bottom, it is written um, in alphabetical order, um, in Hebrew, from, from Aleph all the way to the end. Um, so in other words, if this was English, verse 1 starts with an A, verse 2 starts with a B, verse 3 starts with a C, verse 4 starts with a and, and, and this is, it moves all the way through the entire alphabet and ends. And so you say, why would they do that? First off, it was a very difficult thing to do. It was, uh, it was considered in, incredible um, literature. And, and one of the reasons that the Jewish people would do this is because when you did this, you were basically saying, you want to know about suffering? I'm going to write every word that can be written about suffering. And so they would include the entire alphabet, and by including the entire alphabet, it was sort of a given that every possible word is used. So basically, David was saying, I have suffered, and I have suffered intensely, and I'm going to tell you everything you ever need to know about suffering. And so when you read this, it's an incredible passage on what it means to be a follower of God and to go through suffering with your soul intact. So why would Peter reference this? If you were here at our first passage, our first, uh, our first sermon in Peter, then I laid out the context. The people who Peter is writing to are being hunted down and killed by Emperor Nero. He's tracking them down like dogs, dragging them out into the streets, uh, rolling them in tar and lighting them on fire. He's, he's, serving, he's serving them to lions as food for entertainment for the, for the crowds. He is, um, it's, it's huge, great terror is what they are going through. And so Peter says, I know a lot of you are baby Christians and your faith is being tested and I hope you're eating the right thing. Right now, I hope you're feeding your soul because times are very, very difficult. And I know you're going through suffering. And so I want to point you to somewhere where I will show you what it's like to feed your soul, what it needs to have at the right time. And there's passages in scripture for everything. These are the collective minds of, of the great followers of God from hundreds and thousands of years ago who followed God and learned a lot about him through intense suffering, things that we will never go through, and they wrote about what it means to follow God and keep your soul intact, and we need to read their writings. So, and so the, we read this now, and we're like, well, okay, 
So we live in a beautiful state in Florida. It's relatively warm compared to the rest of the schmucks out there suffering in the, in the freezing cold. Um, why do I need to read a passage about salvation and deliverance? What in the world is so difficult in our nation, which is the richest nation that has ever existed in the, on, on the face of the earth since the beginning of mankind? Um, why do I need to read about suffering? Well, I want to redirect you to the words of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is leading his disciples and he says this. Then he told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so you read this and you assume that he's talking about, it's, it's talking about his own crucifixion when he took the cross and he walked up the hill and, and we're supposed to live like that and follow Jesus. And this is how people read it. But that is completely a misunderstanding of this passage. They had no idea that Jesus was going to be crucified. And Jesus had not been crucified. At this point in time, when you mention the cross, it meant it, it was not connected to God or the Messiah at all. Nobody would have thought, cross, Jesus. It, that wasn't how it was. When you thought of the cross in ancient Roman times, the cross was an execution and torture device that they would kill traitors to the empire on, people who were actively working to topple the empire. And so when Jesus says, let, let's focus on this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. So what are you supposed to be turning your back on and denying? Yourself. That is, he, he's basically telling you, you are con- being, being controlled. You have a king and it is, it is your mind, it is your flesh, it is these desires that you have. It's, and, and, and when you live by that, what you see is the fruits of, of exactly what Peter talked about. You end up with malice and envy. You have all these things that you want. You have your own earthly kingdom. And Jesus says, you need to defect against that kingdom. You need to wage war on that kingdom and say, I will no longer be, be under this earthly reign that I am under. And I'm going to put something else in charge. And it's going to be my soul. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to take my flesh and my, and my body off of, off of the throne. And I'm going to put my soul in charge. And I'm going to see what we can do with that. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And, and so, I, earlier this week, uh, wrote a blog post that apparently connected with a lot of people. And it had to do with this, your calendar. And it was basically, um, my, my argument uh, was that um, your calendar is, should not be a list of things you need to get done. Your calendar should be a representation of exactly who you want to be over the next six months, the next year. Um, too many people fill their calendar with just appointments and schedules, wall-to-wall business um, and, and meetings, and, and they have all this white space, and they're hoping that in the white spaces that maybe they'll be able to do all the things that they need to do for them. They'll be able to get some rest and some quiet time and, and some, some uh, relationship time with their wife and their children and their, or their husband and, 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 and their parents. And they, they need to feed their soul and they're hoping that maybe in that white space between all the colors that they'll be able to find that. The problem is if you don't tell your calendar what to do, somebody else is going to come in and tell you what to do. And, and, and a lot of you are just wall-to-wall booked and you feel it in your soul and we can see it on your face and you are tired and you are worn out and your soul is probably trying to talk to you and tell you, I am dying here. Because the ruler of your life is not your soul. 
You have so many obligations to so many people that they are ruling your life. You are, you're, 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 and all of them are incredibly honorable. You're trying to please your job, you're, uh, please your boss, do, do a good job. You're trying to uh, provide for your family. You're trying to uh, raise your kids. You're, you're trying to meet the needs of your friends. Um, and all of these people are all over you. And, and the fleshly thing to do is just say, yes, 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 yes. But even Jesus escaped in a boat to go away by himself and pray. And you kind of want to say, well, that time that Jesus was off praying by himself, he could have been spent healing people and preaching the gospel. It would have destroyed him. And it will destroy you. And so your calendar, I argue, you need to wipe that clean and you need to start, the the bright, bold colors should be uh, six months from now, I want to have a better prayer life. And so I'm going to put in my calendar, I'm going to pray here. I'm going to read books on prayer. I'm going to pray with people. Um, six months from now, I need to be a little, a little healthier. And so I'm going to put exercise time in there. Six months from now, I need to have a better relationship with my wife. And so maybe I need to book some counseling. Maybe I need to just, we need to read some books together. We need to spend time together, go out on dates. Um, six months from now, I need to know more about this subject or that subject and, and biblical theology and, and doctrine. And so maybe I'm going to take a class. Maybe I'm going to spend time with the pastor or my elders and, and ask them questions. I need to get to how church, all of it. Your calendar should represent who you want to be, not who everyone else is demanding that you be. First and foremost, because your soul is in danger of dying. Because I I want to go back to this passage now. Um, Okay, so let's start back at the top. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And then he says this, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then he asks the big question, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So many of you are out to gain the entire world and your soul is dying. You are not feeding it anything. And what little you, it, it does end up eating somehow at, at church or whatever is just being poured right back out for everyone else. And, and then he asks, what shall a man give in return for his soul? So many of us are just killing our souls, killing our insides. Um, and I, again, I, this was a passage that when I was young, I was told, oh, it means don't work for stuff and don't, don't um, have anything because um, what does it profit for you if you have that thing and then you lose your soul and you go to hell? But see, I was smart enough when I was 15 to realize, oh, well, I'm not going to hell, so I can work for all that stuff. And so I did. And that's a complete misunderstanding. And, and so... Um, Okay, so this is interesting. Um, in the mid-1800s, farmers in the, in the Midwest would run a, a rope at the first sign of any kind of cold or snow. They would run a rope from their porch all the way to their barn because they had heard stories of people who, of, of farmers who were out in their yards, out in their fields, and they were working, and they, maybe they were in their barn or wherever, and a storm, a whiteout snowstorm would just roll in out of nowhere. And it was very common for them to, to hear stories about farmers who just died in their yard because they could not find their way to their house on their own land because it was just whiteout snowstorm. And so the ones who wanted to ensure that they survived the sudden chaos of a storm would hang a rope from their house to their barn. And so all they had to do was walk in a certain direction. They would find that rope and they would find their way home again. Every single time. And I would argue that this is a perfect metaphor for tending to your soul. 
because terrible things will happen. I, I know I have a lot, of, a lot of young people here that think you're just, just completely invincible. Nothing's ever going to go wrong. Nothing's ever going to happen. Um, I mean, statistics are pretty high that over the next five years, a huge tragedy is going to hit your life. Um, anyone who's lived past the age of 30 will tell you, yeah, it'll, something, something bad's going to happen. And I don't want to bum you out. But I kind of want to point to this and say, have, are you prepped at all? Have you fed your soul at all? Have you done any preparation so that in the storm, when things happen, you will find your way home? Because far too many people, life closes in on them, things go real bad suddenly, very quickly, and their, their faith dies right there in the yard. They're done. I have so many family members. I grew up in, 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 a, in a massive ministry. Um, most of the kids of, of the directors of all this ministry, a lot of them are atheists now. Um, most of my cousins are atheists now and, and um, most of my family uh, that are atheists now, it, it simply happened because um, one of my cousins died when I was in college. She, got, she had been married two years and got in a terrible car wreck and died instantly. And I remember being at the funeral and they were all standing over her casket and her husband was just screaming out to God, you did a terrible thing and his face was all beat up and the whole family was just mad and they never came back. They died right there in that yard in the midst of the snowstorm. Their faith was done. Let me tell you another story. There's a, there's a man um, named Horatio Spafford. Maybe you've heard of him. Um, let me tell you a little bit about his story. In, in 1871, he, had, he, was, he was a big real estate tycoon in Chicago. Um, wife, uh, four kids, uh, three daughters and a son. In 1871, his son died of scarlet fever. In 1872, um, the Great Chicago Fire broke out and, and wiped out all of his real estate, which was underinsured, and so he lost everything. In 1873, he put his wife and daughters on a boat to go to England while he stayed behind and finished up some work. He was going to meet them there, and they were going to start over. And a storm came and sunk the boat. Two days later, he receives this telegram from his wife. It says right here, this is the exact telegram. It says, saved alone, what shall I do? And this is the kind of thing, this is the whiteout storm that destroys your faith. You haven't fed it, you haven't poured into it, and so there's a good chance you're not going to find your way home again. But this man had, this was a very godly man. And so he gets on a boat, and he sails to meet his wife, and as he's passing over the, the identical spot where the boat sank with the rest of his children on board, he writes this, When peace like a river attendeth my way, and when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever the lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. This guy had prepared. He had prepared his soul. He had been building it and strengthening it and feeding it exactly what it needs so that when times of trouble came, he had a source to pull from to bless the lives of million peop- millions of people that came after him. We sing this song today. Churches all across the world today are singing this song. And so I want, I want to say one more thing, one last thing, and I want you to think about it and pay attention to it. There will come a time over the next century where your life will be taken apart. Some of you, it, some of you will, will live through it. Some of you will, your life will fall apart and you will suffer while you're living. For the rest of us, our life will be taken apart when we die. No matter what, your life will be taken apart. 
And the only thing you will be left with is the soul that you have built. And so many of us are spending so much time building worldly stuff and building just things that don't really matter in the grand scheme of things. And we spend so much time on those that we never actually focus on our soul when the soul is the only thing that's actually going to survive all of this. What are you doing to feed that soul? Because at the end of all of this, that will be what you have. You need Jesus. All of us need Jesus. We need the gospel. We need to pour the gospel into our hearts to change us, to make us into who we were originally intended and created to be. And we have to feed it and nourish it. You have to spend time in prayer and, and service and solitude and, and worship. And you have to nourish this life. And you need to wage war and rebel against um, those other things that are trying to lead your life. Your soul is your operating system. It wants everything to work with it. And when everything gets together on the soul's life and moves in that direction where your soul wants to go, life will be different. Life is good. Life will be pleasing and joyful and peaceful. And so I don't know where all of you are this morning. There's probably something here for each of you that you need to hear. I, I, all of this rocked my world this week. And uh, hopefully we can work on this together. We can change this together. We can be open and honest about what we're really living for. And, and, and we can rebel against that and, and put our soul in charge and our spirit and connect it to God and follow Jesus with all of who we are. So we're going to spend some time in, in prayer and um, communion. Our communion servers, you guys can go ahead and get ready to serve. Um, if you need prayer, write out these double doors on the left. There's a room there that, that some people will be in that would love to pray with you. Um, communion is a time of sort of confession and reminding ourselves of what Jesus did for us. And it's a time of repentance. And so maybe today you could talk to God and you could ask him to reveal the ways that that your soul is not healthy, that it's not fed, and that you need to pour into it. Um, and some of you might be very surprised at what you find. And so, yeah, we're going to take some time and, uh, and take communion. If you're not a follower of Christ, I would ask that you not take it. But if you are, you don't have to be a member of our church. Please take communion with us. We would welcome that. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you that uh, you are here. And you love us and you want what's best for us. And, and you want us to be healthy. And you want us to thrive. And so you want us to eat from your word, your gospel, your message. And take it in and touch the deepest parts of our hearts and our soul. Connect our spirit to yours and help us to follow your spirit. We love you, Father. Be with us now as we take communion. Teach us to repent. Teach us to wholly commit our, ourselves to you. Thank you. In your name. Amen.